Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, we bring together Prospect's editors and its experts, pushing the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and this week we welcome in the philosopher John Gray to the Prospect offices, where he was in conversation with Samir Rahim at our monthly book club. Before taking to the stage, Samir talked to John about the theme set out in his new book, Seven Types of Atheism. Well, of course, it's natural that people will seek intellectual comfort and security when the liberal world is so threat. But that, of course, gives the game away. What they're seeking is not the truth or to show the rationality of their beliefs. They're they're seeking some way of staving off panic. John is one of the most illuminating voices in the debate over the interplay between liberal values and belief systems. And in John Gray's view, liberalism is really just one more religion. But there are other big voices in this arena including that of the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. Pinker, who's a firm rationalist who appeared on this podcast earlier in the year to mark the publication of his own book about the Enlightenment, because he thinks that those Enlightenment liberal values that came into the world two or three hundred years ago are not just an article of faith, but the practical driver of all that's happened that's good in the world in the last several hundred years. And as you'll hear... John Gray has got some very deep differences with what Stephen Pinker had to say. John Gray, thanks for coming to the Prospect podcast. Not a bit. I'm glad to be here. Over the last 15 years or so, we've seen a sort of resurgence in the God debate and atheists sort of battling out on one side against religious believers and there have been some fervent polemics. But in your new book, um, Seven Types of Atheism, you argue that contemporary atheism, rather than marking the absence of belief has perhaps more in common with traditional religion than uh, than one might think. I do argue that. Um, I aim to really uh, step outside of the so-called God debate. Indeed, I, for a while, to- toyed with a subtitle, uh, which would have been, Why the God Debate is Dead. Um, my objection to the God debate is several fold. One is that I think most of the participants in it don't know much about the history of atheism or indeed of religion. So it's a rather uh, historically barren uh, uh, debate. But more generally, uh, the the debate has been framed in terms of a binary choice between belief and what's called unbelief. 
But there are many, many reasons for not doing that. One is that, historically speaking, there have been many different kinds of atheism. And the other is that, of course, there are many different kinds of religion. And most of the world's religions have not been types of monotheism of which uh, the uh, against which the new atheism so-called or the atheism to which you refer which has been uh, active in the last 15 years belongs i mean the atheism no doubt there are atheists in non-monotheistic cultures people who might call themselves that or think of themselves in that way but modern atheism is a byproduct of uh, western monotheism uh, it's it's grown up as a set of traditions um, uh, uh, um, under the shadow of uh, um, mainly Christian monotheism. And to a very large extent, I think, um, atheism now is a kind of hollowed-out version of, uh, of, of Christian monotheism. So my, the, the, the purpose of the book, the primary intellectual purpose of the book at least, was to displace that debate and... Uh, try and show the uh, uh, plurality of atheisms and the plurality of types of religion. But there's an even deeper um, reason why I wanted to um, uh, step aside from that debate, which I think is by now boring and, uh, uh, and more or less worn out, which is that most religions haven't centrally been about belief. Um, um, most religions haven't had creeds. For example, in pre-Christian Europe, the Europe, the Greco-Roman civilization before it became Christianized, um, there were panoplies of gods, there were countless religious practices, but none of them had a creed which had certain advantages. You, you couldn't be a heretic. Um, ancient Greeks in the time of Socrates, uh, for example, had to perform certain religious duties to their uh, cities, but they, they didn't include belief because there weren't any prescribed beliefs. So the whole, the whole, the emphasis on belief came later, not with Judaism, uh, but with uh, Christianity, which in the book I argue was not in fact founded by um, Jesus. Jesus was a charismatic Jewish, Jewish prophet of a kind of which there were many at the time. Uh, uh, the Christianity was founded by um, Paul and later given a theology by um, Augustine in which belief of various kinds was central, but most religions haven't really focused on belief. Certainly, not belief in the set of a in the sense of a set of propositions or the twenty nine articles of the Anglican Church. That's absolutely foreign. What did Homer believe, or the people in Homer's day? What do most people who would now think of themselves, if they did, to Western term, of course, as Hindus? What do they believe? What do Taoists believe? What do, there are no easy answers to these questions because belief isn't important. So this whole debate about what to believe or not believe is really a, 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 a byproduct of Christian, of Christian monotheism. And I think modern atheism, the atheism, so-called the new atheism, to which, I, which is the first of the seven types I discuss in this book, in one of the shortest chapters in the book, because I think it's least worth bothering about, because um, there's not much, almost nothing that's new in it and nothing very interesting. Um, the Victorian debate was actually more interesting. Um, uh, the the modern atheism, uh, the um, uh, the new atheism with which I begin and then dismiss, is really f uh, uh, framed in terms, f being framed in terms of belief, terms which really are taken from Christianity. Even then, actually, from a particular type of Christianity, because um, in other traditions of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, for example, um, beliefs in the sense of doctrines or creeds that can be set out and given 
exact meanings hardly figure at all. What matters is, is practice, and of course it's practice that's central to uh, most religions, not belief. Not so long ago, we had um, Stephen Pinker sitting in the seat that you're you're mm-hmm. in now, mm-hmm. and um, his argument is that um, uh, as traditional religion dies away, we can replace it with mm-hmm. um, enlightenment, yeah. scientific reason, and that the world has improved in so mm-hmm. many ways mm-hmm. um, since that time. Um, that's not an argument that you have much mm-hmm. time for, is it? It's a very old-fashioned argument. I mean, if you knew any intellectual history, or if his readers did. Um, they would know that in the first half of the 19th century in France, the, a powerful movement emerged, which um, positivism, which lasted for most of the century and into the 20th century, gained lots of adherence, had a big impact in Britain, John Stuart Mill, uh, uh, George Eliot, many others, which argued that um, uh, religion, uh, and as always, they really, by religion, they meant Christianity, because uh, that's all they really knew about, um, was a sort of primitive theory, in other words, a primitive type of science, and that um, religions were, in effect, theories of everything. And when science developed, uh, old religions, um, like Christianity, would cease to be useful because they would have been replaced by better theories. And uh, that was an idea which uh, was very strong throughout the 19th century, yet influenced um, not only the people I mentioned, but uh, anthropologists uh, uh, such as J.G. Fraser, who wrote a book called The Golden Bough, which is still in print, which is a sort of collection of ancient myths sold millions and millions and millions, which is actually uh, a, a kind of summation a hundred over a hundred years before of uh, all of the books, all, all of the arguments in Pinker's book, which don't depend on subsequent scientific knowledge. In other words, it Darwin is at the center of it, although originally, actually, in positivism in um, in um, France, um, uh, developed before Darwin. Darwin's book was published in 1859, um, and the positivists uh, couldn't call on Darwin then, but they did have a theory which was broadly evolutionary, which is that human thought went through several stages. There was magic and religion, then there was what they called metaphysics, and eventually science. And when science became dominant, you wouldn't need the previous two. Now, interestingly, um, Comte, I mentioned, was actually more intelligent than most of the um, later humanists uh, uh, or people who follow Pinker today because he said that although religious ways of thinking would be uh, superseded by science, he thought that religion, some kind of religion, was necessary for human beings, for sociological and, and psychological meanings. And so he invented a religion, which he called the religion of humanity, in which what was worshipped was not God, but the supreme being, which was the human species itself. The human species was inherently progressive. It went through these stages. It got to the stage of science, but still needed a religion. And the religion he invented was modeled on the Catholic Church. It involved daily rituals of various kinds based on phrenology, the science of the day. Um, it had priests, uh, it had churches, it spread all in many parts of the world, Vietnam, Brazil. There's a positivist slogan still on the Brazilian flag. It's still operating in Brazil to this very day. Um, so um, that was the kind of background. So there's absolutely, it's one of the reasons I, I mean, I've reviewed Pinker more than once, of course, but one of the reasons I didn't devote more than I absolutely, space than I absolutely had to, to the so-called new atheists, because this argument is made... Um, uh, entirely, uh, clearly, uh, the basic structure, the, the bones of the argument, everything that doesn't develop, doesn't uh, depend in Pinker on 
knowledge since um, 1912 or something, is made in these positivist um, uh, 19th century and early 20th century. It's all there. Um, so it's just a repetition of a period of intellectual history of which he's ignorant. And in a way, you go further than um, the most uh, uh, fervent atheist because you're highly sceptical not only of uh, religious claims but of the ideologies which you say have um, derived from that, including, um, say, liberalism. Um, And I was just wondering whether um, in a time when we feel that uh, the liberal order is under threat... Um, and that other kinds of organising a society are coming to coming to sort of um, become more popular around the world. Authoritarianism, whether the, whether you know your fly in the ointment critiques of liberalism uh, start to feel a little bit uh, more dangerous to um, to be encouraging. Well, of course, it's natural that people will um, seek intellectual comfort and security when the liberal world is um, under threat. Um, uh, I mean. But that, of course, gives the game away. What they're seeking is not the truth or to show the rationality of their beliefs. They're, they're seeking some way of staving off panic, moral panic. And essentially, that's what Pinker is. He's a, he's a, he's a, a modern sermonizer whose vast audience is that of frightened liberals all over the world. Um, serves a function, but I'm not interested in it. I mean, I take a more traditional view of uh, what a thinker should do, a thinker should strive to see the world as clearly and as truly as he or she can, present their results, and then leave it to the reader to decide what to do. So um, um, uh, I'm not providing, um, as Pinker is, uh, um, chicken soup for the frightened liberal soul, the terrified liberal soul. Um, uh, My point is a different one, which is that um, when people give up monotheism, especially atheists who belong in organized movements, um, they think that's they've given because they've given up belief. They've stepped outside of monotheistic ways of thinking. But all they've done is invert most of them. And uh, in itself, atheism, as I say at the start of the book. Now I say there are many types, so I don't offer a formal definition, and I don't offer one in terms of belief or disbelief. I offer just a pragmatic one. In itself, atheism amounts to very little. It's it's simply anyone is an atheist who has no need and doesn't use. Um, the concept of a creator God. So if you just aren't interested in it, or can't be bothered with it, or, uh, or don't use it, I have no need for it, you're an atheist. Because if that you, if you take that definition, I think it's a reasonable one, then many, many religions would be atheist. Buddhism, for example, never mentions a, a creator God until it comes into contact with Christianity and then rejects it. Buddhism rejects an individual soul, even explicitly. Rejects even the concept of the soul that was uh, present in Indian thought in Hinduism and at the time that Buddha emerged and most religions in fact or many religions are atheist in that sense even animism forms of polytheism which recognize many gods often don't recognize a, a creator god so they'd be atheist too so in that sense atheism is trivial but in another sense it's very important especially if you come from within a monotheistic culture because most atheists uh, reject what they call belief in a creator God, but keep most of the rest of the categories and ways of thinking about human history and the human animal and the world that they inherit from Christianity. So, for example, they they assume that there's a that that human history is in some sense a single redemptive or progressive drama. 
Now, uh, in the ancient world before Christianity, in um, Greek and uh, Roman thought, was no such conception. I mean, history in uh, the ancient historians or in in the ancient philosophers is often modelled on the, the natural seasons. There are different civilizations which are like different forests or plants. So um, they grow up. They have a spring. They have a summer. They flourish and thrive. Then they, there's an autumn. There's a winter. Then they die, and that cycle is repeated forever. Uh, um, uh, so there's no uh, uh, universal plot or meaning to history. That came along in a big way, only with Christianity, which began to assert that, uh, which asserted that uh, there was possibly hidden from the human mind, possibly even accessible, inaccessible to the human mind. There was a kind of a providential design in history. It was sort of going somewhere, and that reflects the fact that Christians have always, Christianity has always been since it was invented, as I think, by Paul and Augustine in historical religion, because it depends on unique historical events. There was a Jesus who was born, uh, got crucified, died, and came back. Unique historical events. Um, hardly any other religions in the world are so focused on, on history uh, as Christianity has proved to be. Now, what happens when you get um, secular Christianity, if you like, or secular thought, secular faiths in the West, is that this apparatus, this way of thinking about history, is carried over, even though uh, it belonged with monotheism. Um, so uh, uh, the idea that, uh, um, for example, the periods of improvement in history, which, of course, the ancient world fully accepted, there were periods of advancing civilization, periods when knowledge grew, when the arts flourished, when people got richer, which were more peaceful, but they were followed by other periods of barbarism and war and ignorance and decline. That view of the world, which pretty well everybody in the whole world accepted until about 1700, is now so horrifying, so terrifying, so prov provoking of despair and what it's called nihilism, which when I propounded it's called a nihilistic view, which of course means that everyone up to about 1700 was a nihilist, which I think is a bit odd and actually extremely silly. It just shows that um, uh, modern atheists, most of them, not all, I mean, my book is two of the uh, five categories of types of atheism or atheists who don't accept this this way of thinking. So there are some who don't. But most types of modern atheism, and pretty well nearly all atheists today, accept the view, which was part of the religion of humanity I mentioned earlier, that Auguste Comte invented and John Stuart Mill uh, adopted and pr promoted in various ways, although he had doubts about it. Uh, uh, modern humanism, secular humanism, whether it's liberal or not, and most secular humanists haven't been liberals, they've been non-liberals or even anti-liberals, like Marx or Comte himself. He, he hated liberalism, hated liberalism, or saw it as best as a kind of necessary period before you got to a higher society. Um, uh, they've all accepted this view that human history is sort of has a direction, an overall direction. It's not inevitably getting better all the time, but there's an overall momentum to sort of betterment, improvement. And what's gained is not completely lost or not for long anyway. So the human species is advancing. And so human history can be read as a moral tale, as a moral drama, a drama of redemption, though put in secular terms. So the tyrannies and massacres and genocides of the past can be somehow redeemed by a future in which they don't happen. Um, and um, uh, uh, I hold that the um, uh, ancient view, I'm sometimes described as a postmodernist, and probably more a pre-modernist actually, uh, the ancient view is closer to the, reality, the truth of things. Most of human history is drift, long periods in which 
is just chaos in which progress of any kind is not possible actually um, um, with periods of advance and growth in the last couple of hundred years we've had a huge advance in wealth we've had a huge inv uh, increase in the size of the human population which is related to spin-offs from science like uh, intensive farming or uh, modern sewage and that kind of thing uh, we've also had the biggest wars and the biggest genocides in the last 400 years, probably anyway, if you count the big genocide that was inflicted by the conquistadors in Latin America. Um, they've all been bigger. Uh, but over the long run, it seems to me uh, that the, the ancient view is more, um, the view that people held right up to and including Machiavelli, that went on right up to at least that time a bit later, is is more is closer to the truth, but it's one which modern people can't accept because, of course, particularly now when uh, the liberal way of life is, um, or the liberal West is um, shrinking, it clearly is compared with China, not just Russia but China. A big China is a big deal in the world, a very big deal. It's interesting, by the way, that Mill. I might talk about Mill later tonight because he's he's such a fascinating character. Mill. Mill was afraid that Europe would fall into what he called Chinese stationariness. Well, we Chinese immobility. Our, our I know. latest issue. I noticed. Is, yeah. That's why I mentioned China it on the way. Yeah. yeah. He was, Mill was afraid. Remember, he, his book was published the same year that um, Darwin's Origin of Species was published, 1859. No mention of Darwin in it. And in fact, as far as I know, he never mentions Darwin till he dies. Um, it hadn't sort of saturated the intellectual climate enough. So nothing to do with Darwinism. Um, but Mill says he's afraid that Europe, it's kind of ironical thinking about it, that will fall into immobility, like China. <laughs> now, I wouldn't describe China as being immobile and Europe mobile. I would describe Europe as being immobile and China as being highly dynamic at the moment. Um, and, the, and what um, uh, people in the liberal West, particularly its thinking minority as it likes to conceive of itself, I think f are beginning to sort of fear is that not only... Um, is the liberal world, um, the liberal West, threatened by various kinds of active aggression, possibly from uh, Russia, some people believe, or from other sources, from jihadist terrorism and others, other sources. But it's been bypassed and surpassed in terms that the West has itself set. So technological progress, the development of AI, uh, robotics, um, uh, uh, environmental, new environmental technologies. It's quite easy to imagine a scenario in which over the next 10, 20, 30 years, China excels the West in all of these. Then what becomes of the West's superiority? Well, you could say it has freedom of speech. Doubtful now, I think, in certain respects. It has various kind of advantages, but it's underneath, essentially, the... Uh, um, uh, the, the disquiet, the anxiety is becoming, I think, unbearable for many Western liberal thinkers, for Western thinkers, and that's why they turn to fundamentalist types of of, of liberalism and humanism. E.G. Pinker, it's a type of secular fundamentalism. Back to Mill, back to the 19th century and 18th century Enlightenment thinkers. Of course, as I pointed out, many of these were quite sort of ugly figures when you look into it. Many of them actually rationalized the race, race, racial prejudices of their day. Even Mill, who I admire actually in most respects, says absolutely explicitly that um, his principle of liberty has no application in uh, what he calls the infancy of the human species, which is the whole world, including India, uh, including China, the whole world except Western Europe, Britain, 
and possibly North America. Uh, so it doesn't apply in the rest of that world. Now, that, he wasn't a racist, though, uh, Mill, except maybe in some cultural sense. Whereas um, uh, thinkers like um, Voltaire, Hume, and um, um, Kant uh, um, make statements, repeated statements, not just ones, which are explicitly racist. And they are sort of edited out of this glorious past to which we... Uh, of the Enlightenment, which we should, which we should take part, and there's a there's a sort of a conceptual feature which I like to draw of the Enlightenment, which is quite important, which kind of connects it, links it almost integrally with certain types of uh, Western racism, which is that the Enlightenment thinkers in, from the 18th century onwards, the ones cited by uh, Pinker among others, um, some of them of course were were Christians. Locke was a Christian. Um, Kant was a Christian. Most of them were Christians, but all of them, including Voltaire and Hume, who weren't uh, Christians, thought not only that their civilization was the best in the world, better than ancient China and better than ancient better was the best, but that it would replace all the others. All the others were played out, or, or so inferior that they. So it was a very strong kind of type of Europocentrism. And uh, part of the, I think, the panic of the liberal West at the moment is the real, is the practical realization. I mean, you can get a million, you can get a million uh, uh, lectures or seminars on cultural diversity in um, in um, universities and other and think tanks and magazines uh, uh, like this. But as an old school of diplomats used to argue, events are more compelling than arguments. And, when, and if China continues its rise, and India too in different uh, forms, uh, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, and they don't actually become more, West, more, more liberal. They might become, in other ways, more Western, but they won't become more liberal. If they, let's say they don't become. Then that practical assumption, that um, practical belief that um, the modern liberal West is the cutting edge, the vanguard of the human species, is, is, is very much undermined. Hence, the popularity of liberal and humanist fundamentalism. Um, just to draw you back to um, away from geopolitical events and back mm. to the mm. back to the personal. Yes. And really, at the end of the book, you talk about um, atheist figures who you uh, find an affinity the with. The last two types. And the yeah. last two. The last two of types. the seven. By the way, maybe we should mention just briefly why there are seven. Mm. Um, it was a reference to um, one great 20th century atheist, William Empson, the poet and critic. Yeah, of course, Milton's God. Milton, great book, yeah. great book. Um, but uh, uh, um, uh, he wrote another book called Seven Types of Ambiguity, in which he um, said that ambiguity, far from being a defect in language, was necessary because the world isn't made up of clearly de demarcated entities or things. It, things are blurred and meld into each other and uh, are multiple and plural. And I think that's true of religions as well that, uh, and, and indeed of atheisms. There are many, you, one has to recognize that although I talk about seven here, I could have said 17 or even 77 if mm, I couldn't yeah. be bothered to write a book that long. But Milton's um, God, uh, the book by Empson to which you refer, is significant because in it he's, he's, he falls into one of the types of uh, atheism I discuss which is mesotheism, which is the hatred of God, whether or not God exists. He was an atheist, so there was no God, but he hated God. In fact, what he says in the, in the book, and I quote this uh, there, he said, the Christian God, when, when people worship the Christian God, and I like this bit, he said, they literally worship the devil. I find that kind of 
bit odd because it could only be metaphorical, actually, if there's no... If there's no God, presumably there's no devil either. But he says they literally were, because the Christian God is the most evil conception ever produced by the human mind, he says, ever. Now, I, I said, where does he get this idea of evil from and why, does he, why is he getting so worked up about it? I mean, he's, I mean, he's, he's in the Christian tradition. Very much in, so. In, even even more than against. Dawkins or any of these yeah. things, because he's worked up to the extent of seeing this as Satan. The Christian God is Satan or Lucifer, um, which I find is very... But, to get back to your question, yes, the last two types of atheism I discuss sort of the five, the first being the so-called new atheism, the second, um, secular humanism, uh, the third, um, atheism uh, 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 um, turned into a scientific religion, um, the fourth um, being um, modern political religions in which I include um, Jacobinism, um, uh, Bolshevism, Nazism, and even liberalism. And uh, the fifth being mesotheism, which I've just mentioned, hatred of God. The sixth is what I is kind of what my non-humanist atheism. That's an atheist who doesn't divinize or deify or or worship or isn't perhaps even particularly reverential towards the human species, and doesn't subscribe to ideas of progress in history. And I discuss a number of them: a philosopher, George Santayana, who I admire very much. Writers uh, uh, such as uh, Joseph Conrad, who, though not a philosopher, held, I think, to this type of atheism. You can glean it from his novels and short stories. And then the two that I like, uh, then the last one, uh, the um, atheism, uh, non-humanist atheism, is the sixth. The last one is what I call the atheism of silence, which is a type of atheism which is so skeptical of our ability to knowledge to know the world that it thinks of language just as a, a useful tool that can uh, um, um, uh, deceive as much as it can reveal uh, of the world and thinks that the world may be ultimately ineffable, unspeakable, or unknowable. And what I argue in that last chapter is that I don't say they blend completely, but I say that that kind of really radical atheism which was developed in uh, the early 20th century by an um, Austro-Hungarian Habsburg thinker, really, called Fritz Mountner. He hasn't had much influence on philosophy, though Samuel Beckett kept his writings at his bedside for about 20 or 30 years, I think. Um, uh, he, he said real atheism is one which wants to get rid of the concept of God altogether and wants to um, uh, um, uh, recognize the makeshift character of all of our concepts. We can't know the world kind of has some affinities with what's called in philosophy apophatic theology, which says you can't say anything about God. Yes, it's quite similar to sort of Very negative similar. theology. Yes, it mm. is it's similar to negative theology. Mm. That's exactly the point you've made. And that sort of, that kind of interests me because um, it's not often, um, that's oft, not often recognized, although there have been great mystics in the past, even within Christianity. One was Meister Eckhart, 13th century German mystic, who said, I pray to God to get rid of the, to rid me of the idea of God. Interesting kind of idea, but of course, outside of Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism and and elsewhere, there are conceptions of God not as a person, not as a divine mind, not as a creator of the world, but as a kind of um, ineffable spiritual reality, which are very like, uh, in certain respects, uh, in these respects, um, this these, this very radical type of atheism. So, and. Schopenhauer was someone very much uh, one of the first European philosophers and still maybe the most important to have been influenced by Indian thought, in this case Vedanta. Um, and um, so there was an ultimate spiritual reality. Schopenhauer was undoubtedly an atheist. He hated Christianity, absolutely detested it. 
Um, but of course, it was nothing to do with science because you're very skeptical about science. Certainly nothing to do with Darwin or evolution because the book hadn't been published by before he died long before any of that uh, presented. Uh, um, uh, but Schopenhauer's atheism went with what I what I call in the book, taking this phrase from Mountner, uh, Fritz Mountner, whom I mentioned earlier, um, a kind of godless mysticism, godless in the sense of a creator god or a divine mind or a personal god, with the idea that there is some sort of spiritual reality there about which nothing at all can be said, but maybe there can be intimations, he thought, in music or in aesthetic experience, because in aesthetic experience, he thought, the boundaries between the self and the world fade away and what then is revealed or intimated, hinted at, is something that can't be spoken about. Wittgenstein later toyed with some ideas like that. Thank you, John Gray. Samir Rahim there, talking to John Gray. So that's it for this week. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes. And for more on the challenges faced by liberal values, but this time coming from China, visit our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And while you're there, I'm sure you'll notice that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable. Please be sure to tune in again soon to the Prospect Podcast.